What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Fred Larson. No relation, but excited to have him on the show. Fred went from the Marriott to working with the Bass Brothers out in Texas to the Walt Disney Company for 20 years to helping the Surgeon General of the U.S. Army. In conversations that, that I was not part of, members of Admiral Mullen's staff speaking with General Horahoe, my name came up as she was articulating what she saw as the problems. And they said, well, there's this guy at Disney that you might want to meet. In the course of the work that they did in February 2008, General Horahoe and a member of Admiral Mullen's staff flew down to Florida. We spent a day and a half together, and I just, you know, kind of shared my vision, born of my experience, of what I was seeing and what I believed were, were you know, the challenges. They shared what they were seeing and, and what they saw as the challenges. And, and you know, and after about uh, 36 hours, you know, as we were driving to the airport, we agreed that we agreed. And uh, shortly after that, I received a, a letter um, offering me a senior executive position uh, stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center attached to the command group. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Fred Larson. No relation, but excited to have him on the show. Fred went from the Marriott to working with the Bass Brothers out in Texas to the Walt Disney Company for 20 years to helping the Surgeon General of the U.S. Army. Uh, Fred, thanks for being on the show. Oh, Jess, it's my honor. Thank you. Um, so you've had quite the resume and, and worked with some impressive organizations and some impressive individuals. It sounds like you've had a, a pretty fun life. It's been a great ride, it's, uh, it's, it, and it continues to be. Now, you and I know each other through your work with, with Army Medicine, was also a client of mine. Can we start with talking about what was so special about your time with Disney that, that the Surgeon General of the, of the U.S. Army wanted to bring you over and, and 
obviously uh, starting there at Walter Reed? Well, just it. Um, I, I came to the attention of the Surgeon General um, through Admiral Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. Uh, uh, and he came to hear about me um, because of the work that my wife and I had been doing for a number of years. In 2003, our son was, uh, our middle son was deployed to um, Iraq in the early days of the war with the United States Navy and Naval Aviation. And, uh, you know, uh, we just knew that there were things that we could do in our community to be helpful. So we started, you know, just reaching out, helping our neighbors. Here in Florida, we don't have a, a base per se, uh, but the vast majority of people serving uh, from Florida are members of the Army, uh, National Guard, and various reserve units. And the big difference is Guard and Reserve units don't have the inherent uh, support structure that the active duty component has. As a result, um, there were lots of moms and dads, wives, um, uh, uh, children, uh, siblings uh, that were in, in some desperate need while their uh, uh, soldiers uh, were being deployed. The big challenges really began to occur when um, our folks were coming home injured. Many of them that had their lives saved miraculously by advances in medicine that have occurred in the past few years. They also came home with complex sets of injuries uh, never before seen in medicine. And uh, as fate would have it, we, uh, we, we have a gentleman in our community here in, in the Orlando area, Stan Patterson, who's one of the top prosthetic engineers in the world. Those people who had lost limbs initially uh, were being sent to Orlando, I discovered. Uh, I realized, now at the time, And at the time, you're out there with Disney. I'm with Disney in, in Central Florida. Yep. We have tens of thousands of hotels, the best theme parks in the world, golf courses, restaurants, just absolutely the best that the hospitality industry might imagine anywhere in the world. And... Uh, I, I realized that the time that our soldiers were spending with Stan, they were staying in a budget motel in a not-so-nice part of town. Well, I reached out to introduce myself to Stan. We've since become great friends and said, hey, Stan, I work at Disney. We have all kinds of hotel rooms. What do you think of the idea of having the folks all, take, you know, all arrange for their, their, uh, their hotel accommodations and you take care of their recovery and uh, um, uh, uh, repair, so to speak. And he said, that's a great idea. So we, as, as, as soldiers, as injured troops would come to um, Central Florida, you know, I would arrange the, um, uh, the hotel. And from that, we got to know a number of, of, of these soldiers and very, I mean, the relationships have, have become very close and personal. And... In some way, we were able to, you know, bring some normalcy back to their life that, for people that have experienced this extraordinarily traumatic occurrence in their life, this, this injury. But more than that, you know, they would travel with their families. So we'd bring some normalcy back to that family experience. That was just one of the pieces. We naively thought that um, we, meaning my wife and I, 
the, the work we were doing was just a unique one-off situation that, that, you know, there was some grand plan being executed, you know, at a much higher level than us uh, to take care of the more, you know, uh, broad encompassing needs of our service members. What we discovered before long was actually no. And that's how um, a member of Admiral Mullen's staff came to know me. And, you know, just from word of mouth of, you know, this guy in Central Florida, I was contacted by a member of his staff and we started a dialogue. They were very interested in what we were doing. I come to find out that, you know, they, that he had staff reaching out to people all over the country doing similar work as, my, as, as Claire and I, because they, in fact, didn't have this grand plan, but they were desperately seeking to formulate one. And they were very interested in hearing what, you know, care and service and recovery looked like at the community level, you know, because they all get briefed at, you know, a 30,000 foot level in Washington, you know, where it's real easy for someone to say, well, everything is great. So they were very, very interested in hearing um, what those dollars being spent looked like on the ground for those, you know, that are actually receiving, you know, the help that they need. And there were some very good things being done, and there were some specific gaps that still needed to be met. And so, and so, how did that transition to? How did that transition to uh, helping with the turnaround at Walter Reed? Well, uh, in 2007, the Washington Post wrote a series of articles about care being less than optimal at Walter Reed, and it had a a hugely disrupting effect throughout the ranks of army medicine, military medicine. A a number of senior leaders were relieved of duty. Uh, Some new leadership was brought in. And one of those people was then Colonel Patricia Horaho. She was brought in as the commander of Walter Reed. And she began to work diligently in resolving some of those challenges. Now, the first thing that she came to understand, and this is important, is that from a strictly clinical point of view, the care being rendered at Walter Reed was probably and continue to be the best in the world. And you might ask yourself, well, you know, if that were the case, why are these terrible things being said about it? And the, the reality that she understood all too well is that in today's world, the delivery of health care to the critically ill and injured is a very complex experience. It's a very complex task. And there are many fundamentally important components of it, which strictly speaking, have nothing to do with medicine. And she knew that therein lie the inherent deficiencies in care for our wounded, ill, and injured. So in conversations that, that I was not part of, members of Admiral Mullen's staff speaking with General Horaho, my name came up as she was articulating what she saw as the problems. And I said, well, there's this guy at Disney that you might want to meet. In the course of the work that they did in February 2008, uh, General Horaho and a member of Admiral Mullen's staff 
flew down to Florida. We spent a day and a half together. And I just, you know, kind of shared my vision born of my experience of what I was seeing and what I believed were, were you know, the challenges. They shared what they were seeing and, and what they saw as the challenges. And, and you know, and after about um, uh, 36 hours, you know, as we were driving to the airport, we agreed that we agreed. And uh, shortly after that, I received a, a letter um, offering me a senior executive position uh, stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center attached to the command group for a role, a civilian role that was essentially a deputy commander for um, uh, uh, culture transformation. She asked me in the car, she said, what title would you like to have? And I said, well, let's call it what it is. We're, we're, we're seeking to transform culture. And it was great. So uh, in, Ju- in July of 2008, I went to work for Army Medicine. I resigned my position at Disney, said goodbye, got an apartment in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I wound up staying for three years, working with the leadership team, uh, really solving those inherent uh, culture problems that produced process problems, which manifested as experience problem. And uh, we, uh, and, you know, as Arbinger might say, it's all about the mindset. So this, I think this is a great topic. You know, so many of the, you know, a lot of our listeners uh, are entrepreneurs or innovators running a business or, or, or growing a team within a larger business, something like this. And um, there's so much lip service paid to customer service. And, and everybody knows these great stories of Nordstrom's or or companies like Zappos that they get, you know, they're able to sell for a billion dollars to Amazon.com because they just got this out of the world service, right? Yes. Um, but it's like one of those things that's easy to say and, and in very few cases actually shows up in reality. You know, I was thinking about back in the Arbinger days when I was teaching with you at West Point that time. Yes. And, and we're talking about this. And I got to tell you, like, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is it's not just a, like an esoteric concept, like it's in your DNA. <laughs> and I think that like you bring a really, a different approach to it. It's more of like a visceral, I wish I had better words to describe like the, the experiential type of effect that you instilled in the soldiers that, that we were teaching together there. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about, you know, what, what 20 years of Disney you think kind of got into your bones. Well, it, you know, uh, I, I've got to tell you that, you know, along the way with Disney, you know, they, you know, what's Disney famous for? Well, you know, like you say, people will say, well, great customer service. The Disney culture did not start off that way. It was, they went through their own evolution. And what that evolution brought them to was some stated core values, and there, and these were established back in the late '50s, uh, shortly after Disneyland opened. And those were safety, courtesy, cleanliness, and efficiency, in that order. And the idea being that if everyone, in their own way, embrace the core values of the organization 
took them to heart and sought to practice them to the best of their ability within the context of their responsibilities that they would experience, they meaning Disney would experience, the outcomes that they desire. There were questions that were asked early on. Somebody asked Walt, you know, uh, what's Disneyland all about? And to paraphrase him, he said, well, you know, Disneyland is about creating magical experiences for families on vacation. And they said, okay, start telling your folks that so that everybody knows. And that one sentence has been a guiding principle for Disney parks and resorts, you know, for, you know, goodness gracious, you know, nearly 60 years. You know, there's power in leadership articulating that sense of purpose and then, in, you know, and then saying, and within this organization, you know, this is the values, these are the values, this is the framework with which, you know, we'll seek to achieve the vision. And out of that, you, you get within the organization all sorts of human behavior. But if the culture is strong enough where it honors those values, you release a great deal of creativity while at the same time ensuring that your outcomes are values-driven and folks aren't inclined to cut corners. Okay, this and is do what, the wrong thing. Yeah, no, this is what I want to talk about because I think anybody listening to this is going to say, "Yeah, I've heard that before." You know what I mean? Like this is not it's not a new concept, yet so few organizations actually deliver on the promise of this. When you think about this and and we'll talk about, you know, working for billionaire Sid Bass after your Marriott days and and how you ended up becoming a senior manager at Disney. Starting at Disney, were there any leaders that you felt like that you had personal contact with that really set that example and kind of like, like lived their life the Disney way that you wanted to emulate when you when in the Disney days? Oh, goodness. Well, you know, in the latter part of my career, there's a gentleman named Lee Cockrell, who was a senior vice president of operations uh, in Florida. And he was a, a mentor. Being very honest, I, for a while, struggled with the boss that I had, we didn't see eye to eye with regard to certain things. And I really struggled with that. You know, do I quit my job? You know, and I, I made a decision. No, no, I love this work. I focused on a leader that I really knew I shared the same values with, and it worked out real, real well to this day. Lee is a dear friend. He's since retired from Disney. He's written several books from an executive level, I believe that he really got it. And uh, he continues to get it. And to that end, he's very, very successful. But Lee Cockrell is a wonderful individual who understands that concept uh, that was posed by Walt, you know, like I say, nearly 60 years ago. Well, and we'll, we'll have to put links, you know, to, the, to his, his books here on, on your page on ideationcollective.com. Anybody who's listening to this on an airplane or walking the dog or something, uh, yeah. come, come to Fred's page on ideationcollective.com. We'll put links to that. Um, so can you give us an example of like uh, a story of something that Lee did that maybe he, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't, that impressed you, that made you want to consider 
being better? Goodness, there, there, believe me, there, there are so, so many. Or just what he was like, if you don't think of a specific well, experience. You know, he, uh, you know he, he, again, he was fearless. He, he had the abilities to run this vast enterprise that, you know, was, you know, half the Disney company resides in central Florida. And every day he showed up and did a masterful job of creating Walt's vision from a leadership standpoint. He understood the big picture, but he also understood that when he was walking through the park and and a child was crying, he would stop and say, hey, how can I help you? You know, he uh, did that himself. He did it himself. And through his example, he was a, a shining example to many, many others. And I... You know, I heard him say once, and, and this is something that's been said by others, but he really, he said, you know, true sign of character is, 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 is how a person behaves um, around people that can do absolutely nothing for them. And I, I was like, yes, I absolutely believe that. To go back to the, um, you know, the question that you posed earlier, you know, that these things, you know, we've heard in customer service seminars time and time again. But I think the reason why it doesn't occur in every organization, that that is to say that success and that excellence, is it comes back to leadership. I believe that every great organization has great principal leaders guiding it. Well, and and, and walking the talk, right? Walking and like, the talk. You, you've worked with these big personalities, you know, uh, and and hard charging, you know, people with ambition, it must be nice to see them not give themselves a pass, right? To actually do what they are asking everyone else to do. Exactly. I mean, you know, and I'm not telling on Lee because he speaks of it in his books. He talked about what it was like when he was younger and in business and just coming up and that he was very much a take no prisoners kind of person. When I was with Marriott, he had he was with Marriott at the time. This was in the early '80s, and I had never met Lee, but I'd heard about him. Oh, and, really? And he had, you know, he had a scary reputation, and, and I use that word because he's used that word. He said that he came to a place in his life where he's like, "Oh my goodness," you know. He he had all the outward success, but inside, really, he had no quality relationships and 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 you know he came to terms with the emptiness that came with that realization and i've got to tell you that his transparency around that really resonated with me because i'll be i'll be i'll be honest just that that i too early in my professional career had very much of a hard charging, take no prisoners attitude. And there was a time in the early 80s where I came to the realization that, oh my goodness, uh, uh, the success that I'm experiencing is at a price greater than I'm willing uh, to pay. And I, I started really looking inward and seeking to do things differently and to do them better. So, you know, as I'm, as we're talking about it, Jess, it, it just, you know, that was probably one of the big moments of connection when Lee and I started to really hit it off. And, and I knew that, oh my goodness, 
not only is this person someone who walks the walk, he, he came from a place not different than my own. That degree of transparency for a leader, not just walking the talk, but willing you know, to admit that, that they too are not perfect is powerful. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because in society, you know, with the social media culture, the, you know, the, the following celebrities culture, there's, there's such pressure to propose this cardboard version, cardboard cutout version of ourselves that's never made a mistake. And, and especially once you're, you know, in charge or in command or the owner or whatever, right? There's, Mm -hmm. there's all these invitations to promote this version of yourself that, that's never made a mistake, that has, you know, is, has been smart their whole life, whatever. What a service to the rest of your organization to be honest about shortcomings and, and the inspiration it gives people like yourself that they can be overcome. Well, um, listen, we're both big fans of now General Jorjo. Um, you spent you know, between the three years at, at Walter Reed and then obviously with her promotion to becoming the Surgeon General of the, of the whole army – you know, six years is a long time to hang out with somebody. Tell us um, some of the the things that you were most impressed with, the things you learned from um, following General Horho around. Uh, she knew at her core how we impacted people in our life was far more important than the things that we say or the things that we do. There are the things that are remembered that cause people to, you know, uh, to react and to behave in the ways that they do. And she went out of her way to do what was right. She was technically proficient at her work as a nurse, but she was also remarkably proficient as a leader. In the, in the early 90s, there was a terrible disaster at Fort Bragg, where some planes collided and crashed onto the runway. Dozens of 82nd Airborne troops were severely injured. She was head nurse on duty that day at Womack Hospital. She had prepared her nursing staff uh, with extensive mass casualty training so that when the, that call came that no one ever wanted to receive, that there were literally trucks delivering severely injured troops to the hospital, get ready. She immediately prepared to be overwhelmed with seriously injured casualties. And as a result, she was credited with dozens of of soldiers um, surviving because of the immediate care that they were able to receive. And that was because of her leadership. And there, it wasn't just, hey, let's get ready, this is happening, but all of the work that preceded that moment in time. No, I can, I can that, that's not hard to imagine at all. I'm thinking about the time that I've spent with her and all the stories that, of, of you know, the different folks across the organization. And for people that don't know, Army Medicine is you know, top five largest medical organization in the world, uh, three million clients. Um, I think you guys operated in 175 countries, is that right? Yes. I'm not sure everybody understands just the scale of, you know, a, an organization that is literally, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year as an organization, what, what that entails. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember a story about 9-11 and her being in the Pentagon when it got crashed into and she she 
walked outside and took charge and got people taken care of. And when some of the most senior officials came out, they looked at her and she said, you got more important things to do. Get, get back inside there and run our country and I'll take care of this. Yes. And literally, you know, there's a story of, um, uh, and I have a photograph of her working in a, um, a makeshift triage area on the grounds with the, the burning Pentagon in the background, the parts of the jet airliner strewn about, still smoldering. And uh, she is in her class A, um, a skirt and blouse, kneeling over you know, a severely inju- injured individual. There, there was a general officer that came up uh, and asked her, how can I help? And she said, give me your belt. She needed a tourniquet. So he took off his belt, um, and she was able to, you know, stop the bleeding. And this, this, this one patient, she said, after the day was over, she ran into that general, and he was still holding his trousers up. Uh, she said, "I'm sorry, but I, I'm afraid I lost your belt." <laughs> Focused and take Focused, charge and you know, there's, organized. There's, there's a quote associated, you know, to General Joshua Chamberlain, who was the commander. Uh, the third main um, at uh, Gettysburg, and he was credited on the second day with turning around the course of the battle. And, you know, people would constantly ask him, you know, you know, how did you do it? You know, you were about to be overrun and you changed the course of the battle. And he said, you know, we we know not that moment when we're called to noble action all we can do is be prepared so that in that moment, you know, we do what's right and necessary. And that's paraphrasing his quote. But I think that's the essence of General Horahoe in that she always sought to do what's right and to be prepared because she knew, she understood all too well from her own deeply personal experience that we never know when that moment occurs, that call to noble action, so that all we can do to ensure that the best is achieved is to be prepared. And we do that by constantly seeking to do what's right. He said, because one of the things Chamberlain said later on, he said, he said we're not suddenly different from our fondest behavior or habit. In other words, in that call to noble action, we fall back instinctually on that thing we're most familiar with, that behavior we're most familiar with. We can't naively expect to behave one way throughout our life and then in that call to noble action, somehow behave differently. Well, what's interesting to me, I'm fascinated with her, um, is... You hear these stories and you, and it's, I mean, you picture like a hard charging general taking care of business, right? And then you meet her and she's like incredibly personable, like not just nice to meet you, ask you the questions that you expect. Like she is, uh, and, and I would maybe credit it partially to her nursing background. She asks you questions, but really cares about the answers in a personal way that you don't necessarily expect from someone who is running an organization that's handling, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And like her, her, uh, personal presence is, I, I, you know, so inviting. I'm any thoughts about that 
Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Jess. When we first met that day and a half in February 2008, I sort of expected this. Uh, she was a colonel at the time. And I expected this person, you know, to be sort of that hard charging, imposing presence who, you know, was going to tell me what needed to be done. And was I up to the task? You know, that that was, you know, knowing nothing about her, that was sort of an expectation. Fondly, I realized early on in the conversation that that was not at all the case. She, yeah, she's very uh, curious, right? She's very curious, genuinely curious. One of the things that she was very curious about, you know, I remember her asking me, she said, how is it that Disney is able to consistently and with rare exception have their cast members, their employees so pleasant under virtually any set of circumstances with the guests that they deal with, even those guests that are really difficult. And, you know, we were, we were not just sitting, we were walking and driving and I was showing her, you know, various aspects of the facility. And I said, well, you know, that goes back to core values. And that, and I talked to her about the principle that Disney uses of uh, there's, there's, there's guidelines and rules for onstage behavior that's where a cast member might be, where there are also expected to be guests. And then backstage behavior. Courtesy is the rule without exception in all onstage areas, regardless of the circumstances. And she was very interested, I remember. And then I said, I said, but there's also backstage rules. I took her to an employee or a cast member break area. And this was just your basic corporate lunchroom that you might, you know, uh, see in any office building that are scattered around the Disney facility. And I said, there's rules that, that occur here. During the downtime, the backstage time, employees are allowed to, you know, be who they are. And bosses, unless there's an emergency, aren't allowed to bother them. That's the decompression. That's the downtime that allows folks to kind of refresh, recharge, and be the person that Disney expects them to be in the onstage areas. Well, she was, she seemed very interested in this. And I later came to find out that she was in the process of helping Army Medicine design the new medical center at Fort Belvoir. She, in conversations with the architect, insisted that they figure out how to apply this onstage, offstage concept in the new medical center. Because traditionally for uh, uh, hospital staff, there is not backstage space. In most mm. hospitals, virtually every square inch is what Disney might call onstage space. There's no room for staff to retreat and decompress. And she saw that as a problem because all too often staff find themselves being criticized 
for behaving in ways that are not aligned with the expectations of, you know, best behavior. This this is something I want to talk about, cultural stuff, because I feel like uh, you have, you know, in your 30 plus years experience working on this um, and creating these kind of environments, you know, things that I know about you from others that that have have, uh, talked about you is this concept that you really brought to a different level than anybody's lip service beforehand, that medical service is more than just people getting better or not. Um, and that, that the, like the medical, the, the care from the army medical department from this giant organization in 175 countries, that it was more than the check marks on the check boxes getting checked off, that it was what it felt like to be a patient of army medicine. And obviously I know you taught all over the country about this and stuff. Do you have any tips for somebody who might be listening that is trying to shift the oil tanker of culture, you know, something that you can't just spin the wheel and step on the gas, you know, something that is deeply ingrained. I mean, that's an organization that's over 200 years old, right? Deeply ingrained, but, but does need to change. Um, what, what kind of principles do you think the rest of us could apply to um, helping, uh, helping a group of people create new mental ruts? I, I think that, that it begins with leadership and their mindset you know, that, that leaders need to examine what it is that they believe and really, I mean, you know, write it down, put it on a sheet of paper in front of you, you and take a look at that and uh, examine whether or not you believe that change is possible. And if you get to the place to say, yes, it's possible, then it's a matter of pursuing it and and pursuing it means helping others in your organization believe that change is possible. It's interesting when you talk about that. One of the things that comes to mind for me that I feel like you guys did better than a number of our uh, other corporate clients that I would go work with is, you know, certain of the leaders in your organization, I mean, they lived it hard. Like they felt a deep accountability to were their actions lining up with their words. So I felt like they lived it. And they had the courage to call other people on it, but not in like an angry, I'm going to blame you way, but in a, you just can't be that way. The culture and people, you know, it's rare that either changes immediately and overnight. Of course not, Uh, right? It occurs, but but it's rare. What, What I saw happen when I arrived at Walter Reed in 2008 um, some of the things that I was saying uh, to the to the staff and the leaders were truly revolutionary and contrary to many of their experiences. I was a civilian in a uniform world, and an unknown quantity, other than the guy that came from Disney, I had to establish my credibility you know, prove that I was what I said I was, not just by my words, but by my actions. And systematically, as I established my credibility, my influence increased. You know, and I I would say to leaders, particularly new leaders, credibility will grow your influence. 
And credibility is born of, you know, showing up, paying attention, telling the truth and doing it out of love. And but that's the interesting thing. Do it out of love. You don't hear that in corporate America that much, you know, unless you're at some like foo-foo retreat where we hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But yet some of the best Navy SEALs and best SWAT commanders, when they talk to me, like they say, yeah, I love my men. But there's so many leaders that they don't have the courage to, to say that they love people. I, I'll tell you, you know, in, in the Bible, in the book of Corinthians, it says, you know, if, if we don't have love, you know, we don't have anything. And, and I believe that. Uh, because acting out of a sincere, heartfelt love for people, the most remarkable things that I could not imagine have occurred in my life. You're right, Jess. I, uh, uh, there has been times where I've been mocked and criticized, and I would just say to them in the most loving way, I said, you know, I, I stand by my results. <laughs> hey, uh, listen, people of integrity expect to be believed, and when they're not, they let history prove them right. Yeah. Um, well, listen, shifting gears slightly, I thought it was an interesting story before the show today when you were talking to me about, you know, your, your years at Marriott out in Rancho Mirage out in the, in the Palm Springs area and yes. having billionaire Sid Bass move the whole company out from Texas for the month of February and bring in all these computers out, you know, in the 80s before that was a, a normal thing and having to call the, the companies to, to hook up network solutions so they could do their trading. Obviously, that, that story turned into, you know, being hired and moving out to Texas to, to work uh, for the organization, very, I'm sure a different kind of leader. What, what things do you feel like you ever learned from, from working for Mr. Bass? It was a remarkable experience. I came from, you know, a, a very modest Midwestern upbringing in South Minneapolis, you know, so the whole persona of the Texas oil billionaire was something that I'd seen in movies, but never experienced. And what I learned from, from the Bass family was a sense of family. It was a multi-billion dollar family business. And being invited into their organization, I was made to feel like one of the family. And that was wonderful. What effect uh, do you think that has? You know, for, for individuals who are growing an organization, this idea of of helping non-blood relatives feel like part of the family. What effect did that have on your, your loyalty or your commitment to the organization? Uh, there was just this sense of closeness and trust. And, and you know, and just be very honest, uh, just like a child would seek to, you know, do well, you know, for their parents. I, my sense was, is, you know, they've provided me this wonderful opportunity. Oh, my goodness. I, I absolutely want to do my best for them. I'll never forget the day that I met Perry Bass, Sid's father. And uh, I walked up to him and I introduced myself and I said, sir, I said, you know, my name is Fred Larson. And I, you know, I, I want to thank you for this opportunity. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I've heard about you. Goodness, it's so good to have you. I said, sir, what would you want me to do? And he looked at me, he looked me right in the eye and he said, just make me proud. And I mean, it was like something your father would say. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said, sir, I will. That was just, it was, it was just powerful. You know, and, and along with their can-do spirit, 
Yeah, you were yeah. talking to me about the the text and like we're going to do this unless you can give me some logical reason we can't. I I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, uh, in the mid '80s, Dove Chocolate was kind of moving from a small regional chocolatier to the you know the national international stage, but most folks hadn't heard of them. And I got a phone call one day from one of the partners asking for a favor. He said, he, he said, Fred, he said, do you know where we can find some Dove ice cream bars? And I said, I, I, I think I know of a couple stores in town that sell them. He, he, I said, why? He said, well, I want us to get a case because we just bought them. And uh, and I went, well, what do you mean? You need a case, but you just bought him. He goes, yeah, no, no, we just bought the company. We want to know if they're any good. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'll see what I can do. But that was, um, you know, that was indicative of that sense of uh, that, that, you know, that can-do spirit and not taking yourself too serious, you know. When they bought the largest share of Disney back in 84, when you're there, to me, it seems like that is kind of a cultural fit, like this family feeling and and the Disney family feeling. It, was it, or was there a lot of friction? Actually, you know, they again, you know, it was it was it was almost a family thing. In that, here was this American um, uh, company, uh, 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 an international icon, that was nearly torn apart and sold off for its individual pieces, which was what um, several um, Wall Street um, uh, folks had in mind. Uh, um, a guy named Saul Steinberg and a guy named Erwin Jacobs were buying up uh, Disney shares with the intent of, of breaking up the company because its individual pieces were worth more than the aggregate value of its outstanding shares. It was Roy Disney, the last remaining Disney by name that was involved in the company, that approached the Bass family and said, you know, would you be willing to intervene to save this company? Mm. And, you know, it was a very personal decision for them. Sid has gone on to say, you know, that his personal shares in the Disney company that he continues to retain will be in his estate when he dies. For him and his specific part, it was huge. Uh, you know, so for them, it was very personal. When they brought in the new management team, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, rest his soul, and, and Gary Wilson, it was a, you know, as they, the word disruptive is very popular today, in 1984, it was very disruptive because the culture at Disney had become very uh, sort of staid, almost dowdy. Some of the things that they were proposing were nothing short of revolutionary. And I think that many people can argue, you know, well, was it a good thing or a bad thing? I believe it was a good thing. The company has grown to be this, you know, global powerhouse. But we also need to realize that had they not it would cease to exist. It would be a, you know, Mickey Mouse would be just a simple footnote in history. You know, over your career, you've been around with big, big change at, at Disney, getting a lot of people to think different, obviously operate the company different, change is one of the largest medical organizations in the world. You know, you've been a great supporter of Child Rescue, uh, our charity over the years. What advice would you have for us as we're trying to influence the greater population to get more involved in, in rescuing children from sex traffickers and, and stopping the abuse of children. 
from your experience, what kind of advice do you have for us at Child Rescue to, to be able to get the word out more and get more people involved? Most people of influence are known by their works. And, you know, to, I think, raise the level of awareness of how much of a problem that this is. People hear the term human trafficking and they, on one level, might understand it to be, well, you know, that that sounds bad, you know, but to fully grasp what that label implies, what it is in reality, it, it's, it's hard for people to wrap their brain around. And the thing that I, I think is additionally important for people to understand is that the, the issue of human trafficking, it's as much a problem in America as it is anywhere. And I think most people would be surprised uh, in seemingly stable, healthy communities how much of that sort of thing is going on. You know, that that's a good point. It it actually is one of the more common questions we get. You know, you know, you hear the like the uh Department of State, they put out their trafficking in persons report, right, every year. And in the previous years they they disclose that uh about eight thousand children per year are sold into America, are trafficked into the United States. Um but what but the number that I don't think people expect is the Department of Justice when they you know in their press releases with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, when they've said that you know in addition to those eight thousand foreign born children that are sold into America, that there's at least a hundred thousand American born children that are being you know one adult is renting to other adults to be abused for money and um you know it's easy I think you're right it's easy to see it in you know, the Ukraine or Moldova or, or Cambodia or Thailand, and not everybody thinks about small town America, you know, um, you know, gets disguised, gets called mislabeled as underage prostitution or underage willing participation, underage criminal instead of 11 year old kidnapping victim, right? About two months ago, I received a briefing from the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. Seminole County is the county with which I live in, in central Florida. It's part of the metropolitan Orlando area. And they have a section uh, of the sheriff's department devoted to human trafficking. And the commander of the unit spoke very candidly in terms of they have the systems in place to intervene to arrest the traffickers and to put the the, the trafficked um, uh, teenagers into rehabilitation programs. That's so great. Which you know, in, in, he said he said, but one of the most troubling, challenging things is the children lack an effective support system that would prevent them from going back as bad as it is. It's the only thing that they know. I mean, and he was speaking from a very heartfelt, you know, I mean, he could see the pain in his face in that he and his folks have been in actively involved in, in rescuing certain people only to find out months later that, that they're back in it. Well, you talk about 
a few gaps in care at Walter Reed, right? It's amazing what this country's been doing since since media has got involved, like the CNN Freedom Project and these movies like Taken with Liam Neeson. Even though it's fictional, it really brought it to the cultural forefront. And we are seeing laws change, and we're seeing police departments having individuals, leaders like the, the gentleman you just talked about, really take the bull by the horns and take the law enforcement side. Um, unfortunately, our country is... is quite a bit behind in the rest of the aftercare you know the rescue is step one in a step yes. of a th- you know journey of a thousand steps um and those those other 900 and something steps need to be uh we need a little work on in this country but you know progress is being made and we, we just keep working to hope it gets even further and there's where you know i i would hope that our churches um uh um you know would see the opportunity and the calling in providing, you know, that aftercare support. Um, the, the the sheriff's lieutenant, you know, when he was speaking, you know, he, you know, he, he used his term, it was so powerful. He says, you, you talk about a social safety net. He said, we're law enforcement. We're the net beneath the net. And, yeah. you know, what happens when they fall through our net? Um, you know, we... <laughs> We really do have to take a deep inward look at our net structure, if you will, and not rely exclusively on government agencies. Um, I, I believe that our churches have a, um, uh, uh, a vital role to play in seeing that this problem is solved. On that vein, I will say we have been so happy to see so many faith-based groups getting involved um, whether it's the, the Catholic Church, a, a number of the, the born-again Christian uh, congregations have gotten involved, the LDS community. Yes. Um, the, uh, we, we even have individuals um, from the Islamic faith that, that are trying to make changes within their own faith and, and trying to um, approach it that way. We've got you know, members of our board um, that, are, that are Jewish that have been talking about, you know, how do we get this involved where... Uh, Kids at their bar mitzvah, <laughs> instead of getting tons of gifts, are, are looking at donating to help less fortunate kids who are being hurt. Um, so I, I, we're, we're not a uh, faith-based group, but we're sure proud of the faith-based groups that, that are um, getting involved with the issue. Um, taking a, a bit of a, ch- a turn here, um, we always like to ask guests what books they think that innovators and entrepreneurs and leaders should be reading. What what are what are some of your hit lists? What are some of the top top recommendations? Well, you know, let me let me uh, uh, I'll, I'll go down the list of the ones that were impactful in my life in the early eighties. Uh, Tom Peters' book "In Search of Excellence" that was that was powerful. Why? You know, because he gave examples at a time where he more or less gave America permission to innovate with that book. And I think we need, we're in a place where we need to once again, give ourselves permission to innovate. Any others come to mind uh, right off the bat? Well, you know, and as I was trying to create some order in my life earlier in my career, when I, when I really kind of shifted gears, there was um, Stephen Covey's second book, First Things First. People had told me that Fred, you know, you're, you're an amazing guy, but you're a little on the impulsive side. <laughs> and, and I realized that much of my behavior was kind of an unguided missile at times. You know, so 
when I picked up First Things First, I know that I spent a good six months reading it cover to cover the first time because like no other book that I've read, it was um, uh, every page had something that was very, very relevant. I'm just laughing because we just had senior executive from Franklin Covey on the show. And mm-hmm. he, he's the Treon Muller. He's the head, head of uh, digital learning. And yes. we were talking about that exact principle. Of all the principles, you know, that are great that he's taught, you know, I catch myself halfway through the day having done a whole bunch of activity but not made progress on the most important thing I should have made progress on. <laughs> and like, Precisely. you know, uh, it's funny how much that principle lasts, the te- you know, that came out with those books 20 and 30 years ago, and yet just as relevant on a daily basis. There's a book that was written late in the 19th century by P.T. Barnum. I'm almost positive you can get it free on Kindle on Amazon. It's called The Art of Money Getting or comma, Golden Rules for Making Money. This was recommended to me and I thought, well, you know, life's more than making money, you know, goodness and in most people's minds, you know, P.T. Barnum was or is thought of maybe as kind of a huckster or, you know, flim flam artist. But really, frankly, what I came to understand about him is, you know, he was more or less the Steve Jobs of his day. He understood people and he understood what they wanted and he was able to deliver products in a way that were relevant. And as a result, he, you know, his customers made him rich. But there's a quote in this book. He, he says that many college students would come to him and say, Mr. Barnum, we want to be just like you, rich and successful. How'd you do it? And he said he would give all of them the same answer. He said, regardless of what you seek to do with your life, seek to do it with excellence. Be the absolute best at whatever it is you seek to do. And he says, and you will get rich. He said, but understand that if you you choose a path of mediocrity, The ranks of the mediocre are and always will be overstaffed, (laughs) hence no job security. And, And I mean, that's just one of the takeaways from this book. But very frankly, you know, he talked... You know, he, 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 you know, his voice came out loud and clear and he, he was very much a, a principle-centered, customer-centered sort of person, certainly with his flaws, but he, he understood that, you know, determination, hard work, and, 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 and a, um, a moral foundation were the essence of success. Wow. Well, you're right. It is. It is on Kindle for free. I, uh, I actually just got it while we've been talking. While you've been telling me about it, so we'll put the link to that on the site here. There, uh, one of the other books that is one of my favorites, and this is for anybody that struggles with working with or for a large, highly bureaucratic organization, and. It's a fun little book written by a gentleman named Gordon McKenzie, 
and it's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. <laughs> okay. And it's a true story about a gentleman who was very much an artist and a poet, but struggling and starving. He was approached by Hallmark Cards in Kansas City and offered this huge executive position. And he said to himself, oh my, all my dreams have come true. Every resource that an artist or poet might seek to have to create the ultimate in their craft would be available to me in such a company like Hallmark. So he accepted the job and he went to work. And he realized that he went from being this starving artist working out of his own studio, which is a renovated garage, to this massive bureaucratic organization that at every turn had a process or a form that he was required to complete properly before he could do anything. The book is all about his journey coming to terms with a very creative person in a highly structured bureaucratic organization and how the two could coexist and be successful together. Well, sounds great. You know, I think the other aspect of that that's probably valuable is even if somebody is at a startup, if they want some Fortune 500 company or some giant organization like Army Medicine as a client, understanding the kind of pain that, that the individuals that their client are going through, right? Why can't this manager just buy what I sold them? You know, and it's probably, uh, probably help them get in tune with uh, bureaucratic customers, huh? Exactly. And, you know, and what this book does in a, in, 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 in a very lighthearted way drives home a very powerful point in that there, um, uh, uh, you know, in a highly structured, highly organized, highly bureaucratic organization, there is a certain amount of security in that, in that, you know, it's going to lumber along and be there for a long, long time. Um, uh, it's kind of like the pyramids, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but then on the other hand, you have this highly creative um, um, nimble, nimble individual who just has a thought and then is able to engage it and and run with it to wherever you know their their artistic aspirations you know take them. Uh, you know, there's a certain instability in that. There's a certain uh, uh, you know wondering what's next. That you know, and hence the term "starving artist." You know, uh, you know, there's no storing up for tomorrow. There's no provision. It's taken day as it comes. And you know, in as much as that structured bureaucratic organization needs fresh water, needs fresh ideas. Um, you know, by its very design, is not really amenable. You know, to the 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 pow pow pow. You know, um, you know, uh, exploding popcorn environment that creative people can sometimes create. Um, uh, and at the same time, you know, creative people look at you know highly structured organizations and see them as stifling. You know, they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're killing me over here. You know, as you're telling, giving that example, I'm just thinking of one of our other show guests, Amy Stellhorn. She owns a creative agency out in the Bay Area called Big Monocle. Um, 
And she told stories because she's got these huge Fortune 500 clients, even though she's got a small, nimble team. And uh, really tapping in and understanding that about her client, while she is frustrated with it oftentimes, um, learning her individual customer's problem of not just how do we market our product, but how do I get this approved up the chain of command? And being willing to adapt so that this individual at the bureaucracy is allowed to buy her stuff and like really like I feel like Amy sets the example of like getting in tune with the customer's problem they're hiring you for on the surface, you know, the marketing problem and the problems underneath the service of how do I get this approved or what do we need to call this so that I'm allowed to do it? And, you know, um, bringing that flexibility in to help, (laughs) to help the client navigate their own culture. She, you know, she's, she's, got a, a highly successful business because of that um, willingness to get granular and personal and individual and, uh, and adapt. Well, let me, um, you know, which brings to mind um, a story and, and it's really a story about how my Disney career almost didn't happen. Um, they invited me to come Disney invited me to come and open the Grand Floridian Hotel. And I had been previously recognized um, by the Marriott Corporation for the work that we had done in Southern California, creating their newest five-star resort, Rancho Las Palmas, and doing the work with, um, uh, um, uh, with the Bass family and, and integrating the new leadership team transition, you know, with Michael Eisner and, uh, and all this. And, you know, and all I could think of was, oh, my goodness, I'm going to bring my family. I'm going to raise my, my boys at Disney World. And how fun is that going to be? I mean, that's, you know, it really my focus was just, you know, the impact that I, it would have on my children. And uh, I came to, um, uh, came to work at Disney and what I found was a culture which was unique unto itself, unlike any other corporate culture I had experienced in my life. And I also experienced that it, it, it had a long tradition of promoting from within. So to bring um, someone from the outside into a senior leader's position uh, in this, for this pivotal project, the first hotel they'd opened in 16 years, um, there was a certain amount of animosity. And I even had one person come up to me and said, oh, so you're the pro from Fort Worth they brought in to run things right. And I went, um, uh, yeah, I guess. Well, let's see what you got, smart guy. Mm. Oh, by the way, the job you have, it was promised to me three years ago. And as a person who clearly had a resentment, I had nothing specifically to do with it other than I had the misfortune of being accepted for a job that he believed he had been promised previously. And I had, you know, I had no relationships with people in the company. But I had this huge responsibility. 
And as a result, I was treated very much like an interloper. At least that's what I internalized. And after about 90 days of real struggle um, to accomplish things, to feel effective, to feel relevant, um, I went to the HR manager and said, let me know what it's going to take for me to resign. And he's like, what? You know, he was surprised. I said, this is not working. Um, I, I, I find this the most frustrating place on earth. There's nothing magical about it. <laughs> I've had, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm causing more pain than, than happiness, um, mostly for myself. Um, and he said, no, no, I, I, um, I can't let you quit. You can't believe what paperwork would be involved for me. And, uh, I'm too busy right now. Listen, would you be willing to take some advice? And I said, yes. He said, for 30 days, what I want you to do was make a point of introducing yourself to at least one person you've never met before every single day. You're not limited to one person, but it's a minimum of one person. And then in 30 days, come back and tell me uh, if you still want to quit. Mm. I said, That's it? He goes, that's the starter. And I... I thought about it and I thought, well, oh, I, what, what choice do I have? You know, so I, I agreed to it. And one person a day turned into two, turned into four, turned into five. I, because I knew no one and I felt completely incapable of being effective, all I could do is meet people. And uh, as a result, after 30 days, um, I had abandoned my desire to quit. I had established enough friendships and relationships in the company that I felt I could be just a modicum of helpful. And, um, and then it turned into a 20-year career. And here's, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Uh, it was August 2008. I had been with Army Medicine about a month, and my cell phone rang. And it was a former uh, um, protege at Disney. And he said to me, he said, Fred, I, I, I hope I'm not bothering you, but there's this project that we've really got to get done. And um, the team's very interested in knowing who you would recommend we put on it. And, and I said, you know, you, you do know that I'm no longer with the company. I'm with Army Medicine. He said, yes, yes, but you know everybody at Disney. <laughs> and <laughs> I, uh, it made me smile. It made me think of that day, you know, 20-plus years before where I was ready to quit because everybody was so mean to me. <laughs> so I'm fascinated with the sheer simplicity of that story. And it's almost so simple that I think it could be written off. Yet, how many of us have been to a conference or some cocktail party where people are standing around not really talking to each other except the people that came together? Or you mm -hmm. go somewhere and, and you like see each other, maybe people nod at each other. And you like you see the same guy like six times and you've, you've kind of nodded or waved a little bit or, you know, like kind of yeah. acknowledge each other, but never actually said a word to each other. 
It's like so crazily simple, and yet how many of us don't do it consistently? And we're and busy I, or whatever. And I, you know, people, you know, you know, and, and people have asked, you know, what what would you attribute to your success? And I, I, it, without a hesitation, I would say more than anything, the people in my life, whether it's my wife, my children, you know, uh, uh, my faith in God, um, uh, 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 you know, who, who have I um, welcomed into my life? You know, therein lies my success. And, um, and, you know, if we're, if we're to really get honest about, you know, the nature of the problems in society today, I believe it's for lack of, of, of deep, meaningful relationships. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I blame smartphones. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you walk through an airport and you have all sorts of people who could be talking to one another, being very social and engaged, who are staring into, you know, uh, uh, a handheld device. Um, it's kind of a huge opportunity, though, for today, you know, for today's innovators or, or entrepreneurs who are trying to change something of like going out and introducing yourself to a lot of people. It's less common. Like you actually stand out more. It's it's a it's almost like the bar has been lowered. You've got an easier chance of standing out. Yeah. Uh, uh, it people uh, people have said to me, "Oh my goodness, Fred, you are so comfortable engaging people. Uh, I wish I had that." And you know, I, I'll be honest, Jess, I I am somebody who by their nature is one of the shyest people on the planet. Um, and, you know, going back in my 20s when I had that epiphany, I realized that, that my shyness created circumstances, created behavior in myself that, you know, people did not receive well or interpreted, you know, uh, uh, not well. And that getting over that sense of shyness of, you know, uh, you know, dealing with it effectively was fundamental to, to, to being better. Um, and, and I, and I would just say that it requires like anything else practice. Um, uh, there were times where in my life, I mean, literally, uh, I have a report card where, you know, your teacher writes at the end of the year um, a little narrative, a summation of, of little Freddie. And my second grade teacher, um, uh, uh, you know, she recommended that my mother take me to a physician and have me examined for fear that she thought that I might have been, you know, you know, it, it, she actually used the word retarded. <laughs> uh, uh, because I didn't talk and because I, if I did, it was with such a stammer that you couldn't really understand what it was I was trying to say. So, and, and, and that pretty much was, you know, what I dealt with for a good many years until I would say my mid twenties when I, you know, realized that, you know, you know, we, we've got a problem that needs to be dealt with. 
you know, and, and the irony is, is, you know, largely what I get paid for today is speaking with and engaging folks and, uh, uh, you know, but it, 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 it isn't something that came, uh, to me, um, naturally. Well, we're glad you developed this skill and, uh, we appreciate the time you spent with us here today. Well, Jess, thank you. You're, you're a dear friend and, uh, the work that you do is, um, uh, you're setting an example for the world. Um, it, um, uh, you know, and, and, and we can only hope that, um, you know, as it goes forward, that more and more people will realize that there is things that they can do, um, in their own community. Uh, you know, the, the, the parallel, the work that you're doing, you know, across the planet, um, uh, and, and, and together, you know, there's not a problem that we can't solve. Keep talking like that. We're going to make you do more stuff for us. I love it. <laughs> it would be my honor, my dear friend. It would be my honor. That'd be great. Thanks again. Love it. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.